Hello and welcome to the Practical Leadership Podcast, where I interview great leaders and try to extract their wisdom and experience for you to learn from and hopefully avoid making their mistakes. Check out practical-leadership.academy because you want to help your new managers succeed with hybrid or remote working. Garen Hess, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Paul. I really appreciate the opportunity. Can I ask you, would you mind introducing yourself? Absolutely. So um, the founder and CEO of a company called Consensus. I'm also father of three grown children and married to a wonderful woman named Kristen. And uh, we've been doing Consensus, which is demo automation software to help scale pre-sales at enterprise software companies for about 10 years now. And that's been uh, the major focus of my career the last 10 years. But uh, really looking forward to this conversation. We touched on living in a way that you have no regrets. And when I look back at my early leadership career, early career, I try not to have any regrets because, you know, if you have a regret, you should have fixed it in the first place, right? (laughs) And if you can't fix it, well, then you can't have a regret. What you can do is you can ask for forgiveness. I look back at the various people that I have used and abused as guinea pigs, willingly, unwillingly, unwittingly (laughs) through my leadership career and made a disaster, as you learn, um, any number of mistakes. If we can help people avoid that, what's, what's one of the highlights that you went through as you became a people lead it as you became an exec, as you as you grew up in the world of work. What's good to take when away from Johnny? Yeah, when I think about regrets from my younger years, it's really a journey of self-awareness for me. Um, I used to be very self-conscious and afraid of leadership, and yet I was constantly being put in leadership positions, both at work, at my church, and other things. And, um, and because I was hyper-aware of my deficiencies, I would often focus on how do I improve my deficiencies? <laughs> and and I spent a lot of time obsessing, sort of self-obsessing about that. And I don't know when exactly or where I, I picked up this thinking, even though since then I've read it in a few places. But I eventually learned that for me, at least, what made the most sense was to stop thinking about and trying to improve on the deficiencies and just focus on my strengths. Because I really believe that I've been blessed with some strengths that really lend themselves well to leadership. But uh, I didn't, I, I was so, uh, uh, so much focused on trying to fix the the deficiencies that I, I, I wasn't able to press or double down on those. And once I realized, oh, you know, I, if, if I'm deficient in a certain area, if I'm weak in a certain area, there's probably only, I can only make small gains. I mean, over time, maybe you can make big gains, but to be the most effective, I really believe that it's best to just understand your strengths and focus on those and, and, and in a, to a large degree, ignore the deficiencies because you can't be great at everything. There's this book I read years ago called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, which was really quite a good book. And I believe all the things that it says, but I don't think there's anybody who has all 21 characteristics. And I was systematically trying to go down and change the things that I was I was weak in. And so that's one thing that I, I suppose if I look back on that I kind of regret is I wish I would have understood that earlier and and just been okay with myself and focused on on what I was good at, because that's where I can add the most value. And when I press on that, that has the most impact. I think if you don't, if you have some deficiencies and they're not toxic deficiencies, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, um, I, well, I would, I would, I would uh, challenge that just a little bit. So, um, you know, Steve Jobs had many toxic deficiencies. I'm, I'm not sitting here arguing that we should obtain toxic deficiencies. Um, Bill Gates had, taught, maybe still has, <laughs> toxic deficiencies. Uh, I'll, uh, you know, Elon Musk. Um, all of the, all of the great leaders in the business world have had toxic deficiencies, and it, it does that mean they're bad leaders? Uh, you could argue on the one sense that. Yes, because they're pain to work with. They hurt people's feelings. But you could also ask the question, is that the most important thing? Um, and and that's that's been a learning experience for me. And I, again, I'm not saying that for everybody that we, we want to just accept the toxic parts of our natures. But I also think that it's a double-edged sword. Can you have a Steve Jobs that did what he did without the way he bullied people around? I'm I'm not sure, but I am grateful that he focused on his strengths and didn't sit there and worry too much about his toxic deficiencies because I'm not sure he would have ever accomplished what he did. There's a I think a sentiment that if you and I'm sure you're picking this up as well, both in the UK and the US. And uh, I'm happily married to, uh, to, to an American, so I have a an angle <laughs> on uh, your part of the world as well. In that there is this. This desire for, and you can call it empathization or call it something, but it's basically if you're not nice to the nth degree and utterly, utterly under this, I don't know, you have to project this veneer of, uh, unless of course it's your nature, uh, of humility, humanity, generosity and all that sort of stuff. And as you said, most of these leaders are not particularly human or generous or nice. I work no. with a lot of entrepreneurial CEOs, and my goodness, there are some personalities there. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned this this idea of being nice, and there's a really great line in one of my favorite Broadway plays called Into the Woods, and the line is from Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, she goes into the forest and, of course, meets the wolf, and the wolf is very charming, but the wolf ultimately takes her down a, a garden path and then eats her, and um, and she you know gets saved just like the story goes uh, with her grandma and she sings this song afterwards and she says among other things uh that she's learned a lot of things and one of the things she's learned is that nice is different than good and uh and it kind of goes to one of the when you know speaking of self-awareness something about personally myself is i i naturally come with an empathetic bent towards life and it took me a long time as a leader to understand that that could become a, a a blocking or inhibiting factor in my leadership rather than a benefit. Most of the time, empathy is considered a benefit. Uh, at least it's toted or touted, I should say, as as something that leaders need to have. And and I do think if you talk to Steve Jobs, you say, hey, you might you know have a little more empathy would be great. But the reality is that um, empathy, and, and you might even call it toxic empathy, because um, it can get in the way of true leadership. Um, there's this really great book I read a few years ago called Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. Yeah. Um, yes, yes, yes. And challenge and it's really, over empathy. Challenge. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really about um, how the modern culture, modern Western culture overemphasizes what you're talking about. This hurting mentality of we've got to make sure everybody feels good. Um, and that that's the primary objective. As long as everyone feels good, we're doing a good job. And I and I really don't believe that. Uh, of course, if everyone feels good, that's great. That's a nice thing. But what is your main job as a leader? It's to accomplish the mission of your leadership role. Get and if people done. feel, yeah, whatever it is. And if people feel good in the process, fantastic. If they don't, 
that's not that big of a deal. Um, now, granted, there there's a line to be crossed somewhere, uh, morally, ethically, right? There's a line there somewhere. But I think that line is so far away from modern leadership thinking that we need to not think about that so much anymore. And what we really need to to think about is how we lead. And leading really means that quite often you do things that make people very, very uncomfortable to the point where they don't like you. And this likability factor that seems to be so important in in so many leadership lists on blogs and books and things is just is not the is not really the the main thing in my opinion. And so I really like that line. Nice is different than good. <laughs> That's one of the ones for the, the post-it note under the tell under the screen. I think you know, nice equals not good. I like that. It's, it's very clear. And I think it gets in the way. It really gets yeah. in the way. And I know uh, uh, it is almost quite mm, uncomfortable to talk about, frankly, because you don't want to. I don't want to be really put my neck out there too far and saying, "Well, actually, maybe you need to be a bit of a jerk." You know, you don't need to be a toxic, nasty, intentionally, as you said, intentionally. It's not a, yeah. it's not a character trait we want to amplify. Yeah, you have to be willing to be looked at as a jerk, even though you're not trying to be. You don't want to act like one, but. Some people will think you are just because you're asking them to do hard things they don't want to do. In order to get something done. Yeah, and that's not being a jerk. That's being a leader. And, and the, there's the, the side of this, and this is the one, the big takeaway I, I try to get into people's heads, is that if you hold people accountable for their actions, if you hold people accountable to what they say or what you've said they're going to do, you drive them towards achievement, towards yeah. delivery, towards contentment and that yes. immense satisfaction and joy <laughs> that comes from getting stuff done. Well, so and I've hard done things. that to you, even though you hate me. You're welcome. Abs- You're absolutely. Welcome. There, it's like I I told uh, there was a young a young guy that I used to work with, and he was playing a lot of ping pong or table tennis in our office, and he was missing his deadlines. And normally, I wasn't you know I didn't really care when people did their work or how they did it. But I just, he was directly reporting to me and he kept missing his deadlines. And I said, I see you playing a lot of table tennis and you're not hitting your deadlines. T- you know, tell me about that. And he's like, well, culture here is terrible. We don't have enough fun. It's this and that. And I, and, and, uh, I said, look, you can't play enough table tennis to take away the bad feeling that comes from not getting your work done. <laughs> right. And I realized at that point that fun in my mind was not the same as fun as his mind. My fun is achieving the, the objectives and, and it's it's and your your comment about contentment i think is really valid cuz this is what i i want most for my people that i work with is i want them to feel a type of joy from work that only comes uh, i i recently described it at our at our only leadership meeting that i it's a type of joy that comes from the quest and a quest is not without extreme challenges and Driving. Driving. Yes, striving. That's a great yeah. word for it. Striving, pressing forward. If you don't have something to press against, press forward, reach for, stretch, then you're just you're kind of coasting. You're not you're not really growing. And I don't think without growth you can you can actually really truly enjoy work. Uh, so yeah, mm. <laughs> I think it's it's the what is the line? Joy cometh in the morning. Yes. Mm. Yes. And it's that joy and happiness are or aren't the same thing. What is joy without happiness? Right. There's this. I think joy is a lot more about the choices you make than the journey you find yourself on. Perhaps now we're getting too. It's, it's almost getting too philosophical for this that. Would be a great, a great for another podcast because uh, yeah, the one. difference joy between happiness and joy is a good one. But That's but it. it's like true it. that that sometimes at work we feel so challenged that we are under great duress. You know, I I recently 
asked my VP of finance to help us get through uh, closing a $110 million investment round in, in our company. That took about four to five months of intense work. And she was pretty burnt out near the end. Uh, but now she is extremely proud of the fact that she got this done and she did a tremendous job. And, uh, and that's, that's what I think of when you, when you say joy in the morning, because that night can feel kind of long, but joy comes in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Every morning. Yeah. Refreshed every morning. That's it. I like that. So we're working on making sure that the folk around us don't feel regret when they get to a point and they look back in the disaster of the trail of victims that they've left behind them in their management <laughs> educational career like, like mine. I'm sorry if you're there. Again, I apologize. <laughs> you know what I live. Just, oh, oh boy. Um, is there a particular event? Is there a mistake or something that perhaps taught you more than others on this journey? Well, I'd say the... Kind of going uh, back to this topic because this is a big one for me personally, just because of the over over sense, the over amplified sense of empathy. Um, back in two thousand eight, uh, I was a different startup, technology startup, and we were struggling. And there was one one of our developers that I knew personally um, had hired him as kind of a personal friend. He's really a good fr a good guy, really good guy, one of the best guys you'll ever meet. But he just wasn't performing and. I waited and waited and waited too long to let him go. And what I realized through that was that I was really putting at risk everyone else's jobs um, for a variety of reasons. One, because we were a very small company. I think at the time we only had 10 people. Um, and the more money of our, or more of our capital I was spending on him, the shorter our runway was getting for everyone else. But also when somebody's not pulling their weight, especially on a small team, it demoralizes everybody else and yeah, it causes flight risks and things like that. And I, and so I, I would say that for me, I, I realized after I let him go that I should have done it about six months before. And it goes back to this, uh, this question of, I was really focused on his needs and what I felt like was his, his right to prove to me that he could do the job. And I wasn't realizing that my focus on his needs and his family's needs was really putting, putting at risk everyone else's. And that was, that was an eye-opening experience for me that, that's helped me ever since to make hard, but but better decisions. I think uh, the further up the greasy pole we all ascend and we, dis we discover that in reality, our job is a steward of capital. It's yeah, the intelligence. It's the lifeblood of the organization. It is. And that those decisions, it's all the people decisions. They're all the ones. They're the ones that I, I don't think I've ever regretted. We talked about regret, regretted firing anyone. But I've regretted not doing it fast enough. It's funny. I've never, I've yeah. never heard any manager say I, reg I regret uh, doing it so quickly. <laughs> no, no, that's the thing. That yeah, the, we're, the we're thing. all a little slow to to do it, and uh, yeah. and it's it is because it's 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 distasteful, it's unpleasant, and it's it's difficult for everybody involved. Yeah. There's um, you're talking about this. We're talking about strengths and maximizing the strengths that we have, as opposed to uh, leaning into those weaknesses. Uh, and typically, this is the thing when you, you my background's in training and all sorts of stuff. My mom was a teacher. Mm -hmm. And of course, you train people who are not good at something to get better at it, right? That's yep. just what you do. No, you bloody don't. No, you do not. Well, <laughs> yeah, you might need to learn a new skill. Fair enough. But you train people who are good at something to get amazing at it. You can take somebody who's a two and get them to be a three. But you can take somebody who's a six and you can get them to be a nine. And that moves yeah. the needle. And I think when you have the 
and I wasn't sure where I was going with this. I had a really, really good point in my mind, and I've lost it. <laughs> well, well, what it makes me think of is this really great documentary on Michael Jordan, the American NBA star. And, uh, you know, if you're going to work with him as a coach, would you try to help him? He had, he had some pretty rough edges, according to his teammates, in terms of how he interacted with them. You know, would you work on helping his basketball skills be continue to get better or how he got along with his teammates, right? You're going to focus on the basketball skills the most. And uh, and I think if we look at each of our ourselves and, and, and just be compassionate and patient on the areas where we're a little bit weak, but focus on, on those strengths, then each of us are going to find the place where we can add the most value. Yeah. Hmm. When you look back from where you are and you're now slightly older, slightly wiser, and much more exalted position than you were in 2008. And <laughs> there's a quote that you have at the, the front of your book, which I can highly recommend to everyone. It's uh, selling is hard, buying is harder. And it was quite a game-changing set of thoughts that uh, I got from it when I, when I first read it. It's the concept of Thank buying you. journeys, not selling journeys. And instinctively, as a fairly decent salesperson, I knew I was taking somebody on a journey. But the fact that you'd now, you now, you, you, you almost empirically put together a process to say, uh, no, it's them. The buyer does everything. You have to lead them. You have to guide them. You can encourage them. They close the deal. They're the ones. Right at the beginning of this really good book, you have walk the same road, arrive at the same destination. You're the same you. Walk a different road, arrive at a distant, different destination, and you're a different you. Can you unpack that for me? <laughs> well, I realized I wrote that after the book was completed. And I realized what I'm really asking people to do is fundamentally change what they've been used to doing. And anytime you're faced with a fundamental change, you're really asking yourself the question of whether you want to go on a personal growth journey or not, and or if you want to just stay at the comfortable status quo. And that's really the question when it comes to change management, whether it's your individual self going on some change journey or whether you're leading change inside the organization, it's all about just uh, what kind of uh, what kind of vision do you have about it? And in this case, what I was trying to do with that is help the readers see that this isn't just about getting a deal done. It's not just about um, about making your hitting your targets. It's if you go on this journey of truly trying to incorporate buyer enablement as an approach to B2B sales, you will not only achieve your goals, but you will find yourself changed in the process. And I thought that might be appealing to people and maybe motivating. So that's where that came from. I think if you get your sellers to understand that they are not selling, they are in fact enabling buyers. Yeah. And that they're enabling buyers to see in the second part, to see the success that they get once you've left the building. Because you're not selling the thing. You're not even selling the use of the thing or the output of the thing. You're selling what happens after they've used it, got the output, and long forgotten that they ever did it. That's yeah. what you're selling. And if you can enable that journey, it's such a more fulfilling role. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of the people that we've sold our software to, for example, or I should say we've coached our customers into buying. Well done. I like that. Good has, Good um, <laughs> has has fundamentally changed their careers, not only because they were able to get the benefits of implementing buyer enablement and demo automation inside their own organizations, but because bringing these concepts of, buyer, concepts of buyer enablement into the organization 
gave them an opportunity to bring strategic thinking into the into the process and it created upward mobility for them in the organization. So some of our customers who in the past had titles like global head of pre-sales or sales engineering uh, are now, you know, global head of buyer enablement and they they are uh elevated and it's helped bring pre-sales in a lot of these enterprise software organizations sort of out of the out of the dark corners of the Oregon and into more of a strategic part of of the of the process for the organization, the growth process. Mm. So that's so it's fun to think about. We aren't at our at our work at consensus, we're not just selling people software to accomplish some value, which is awesome in and of itself, but we're helping those people that do that to have opportunities to rise up in their own organizations. So by consensus, get promoted. <laughs> we, we, that's not a bad tagline because that's happened a lot. <laughs> Feel free, use it as you will. <laughs> I like it. Is there something you might want to thank the young Garen for doing? You know, it's such a great question. Um, and uh, I think of it as a, as a natural bent in life. Like I said, maybe I'm a little more focused on what I wish I would have done differently. But when I look back on on this and think of that question, I think about sitting in a class in college. I was actually an English lit uh, literature major, but my senior year, I took a entrepreneurship lecture series for a half a credit at the business school because I thought it sounded interesting. I didn't know anything about business and it inspired me. It really changed the course of my my career, I think. And there was one man, I don't even remember what company or thing he did or what, what business he built, but he said this quote, he said, too many men tiptoe through life trying to make it safely to death. And I remember hearing that and just thinking, I I do not want to do that. And I would say if there's one thing I want to thank my younger self for, it is being willing to take risks no matter no matter how difficult it ended up being, sometimes like Elon Musk said, it's like eating glass and uh, to run your own company. And and it's true, but I am grateful, regardless of how it turned out, that I, I, I was willing to take those risks. And I, and I hope I still am as I move through the rest of my life. We touched on the idea of regrets and the concept of perhaps a, a regret minimization framework. Going that. back in time, um, uh, intellectually, from your... 97 year old self to even where we are now and saying okay how do we minimize the potential for regret what do we do from here on in to make sure we are our uh, what's what's the, the glib uh, we're living our best lives we're being our best selves all that good what's what, how does that sit with you I, I love the idea i don't know that it would ever be possible to live a life with no regrets because Regrets come from wisdom gained, <laughs> and uh, you don't wisdom. gain wisdom. Totally. You know, wisdom looking back is sort of what causes the regret. <laughs> well, it's—I mean, I've got an equation for wisdom, which is uh, knowledge plus experience plus reflection equals wisdom. Uh -huh. I like it. Yeah, but I do like this idea. I mean, I think if we spent more time thinking about it, um, you know, you had you had mentioned this nurse, the end of life nurse that. Mm -hmm. Um, was was talking and did a study on on regret, and I think that is one of the ways to potentially reduce regret, and that is to imagine our death. Um, I, I don't think we do enough of that in this life. We sort of go along thinking life is, you know, we know it won't go on forever, but uh, we You'd just be surprised. We just think that uh, mm -hmm. sort of that it will go on as it is, um, and. You know, I'd say one thing that my wife said once. Uh, she said, "I try, I, I try to thank God for uh, what did she say? Now I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> uh, something like, um, I try to thank God for 
what I I would ask him for if it was lost. Um, so mm-hmm. I think of I think of a friend of mine who had a stroke and lost his ability to walk. Well, ever since I saw him go through that and continue to see him in a wheelchair, I am more I am more conscious of thanking and being grateful for uh, the ability to walk. It's a con- more conscious awareness. You know, if we think about what it's like to lose things, uh, maybe we'll be more grateful. Maybe we'll pay more attention. Make sure we safeguard them and and maybe prevent some regret. Mm-hmm. There's the I mean, you say that we everybody's conscious of uh, the fact that we are we are what is it memento mori. You are not immortal. Remember, thou shalt <laughs> shall die. Um, there was a a woman uh, who I know in passing who appeared on TV during the whole COVID debacle and said, "Well, after all, we're all going to die." She was a nurse. She said, "After all, we're all going to die." Mm-hmm. And the complaints came in. She was pilloried for saying, "How can oh, really? you say that?" Just she, for saying that. You are what? <laughs> no one likes to hear the truth. <laughs> oh my goodness! Really? Um, and there's an aspect, I think, of self-obsession there. Yeah, for sure. It's the narcissism, the closeness of something right. that really hurts. I mean, regardless of what your faith is, please have some, at least in humanity. You don't have yeah. to believe. In the resurrection and the life, but you have to have something there. My goodness, right? <laughs> so let us live a life in a way that we have no regrets. To quote the prayer from uh, your friend Gordon, that's a nice one. I think that's a reasonable way to move and say, uh, Garen, how can people find you should they wish to? I'd love to engage with any of your audience and further conversation. You can best place to find me is on LinkedIn, and I have a pretty unique name, so you'll probably be able to find me pretty easily. <laughs> Let us live in a way that we have no regrets. Garen Hess, thank you very much for joining. Thank you, Paul. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining me today. Your homework is to leave your five-star review and please, any comments you have, you really help me to improve every day. And it also helps people to discover me online. You should check out practical-leadership.academy because you want to help your new managers succeed with hybrid or remote working. 